You're listening to The Uncommon Podcast, where we celebrate the stories of men and women who are living uncommon lives. These individuals pursue excellence and purpose in their relationships and work. They optimize their health and stewardship, and they embody victorious vision and fervent faith. Be inspired and encouraged to follow your own uncommon path and live a life of authenticity, accountability, and adventure. Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, back to bring you some of the most uncommon content around. If you've been a listener of the show for even a little while, you've likely picked up on the importance of community in our overall mission. The Uncommon exists to create community for men and women, whether in person or online, in an effort to inspire with each other's stories share resources and ideas that will empower us on our uncommon journeys. And one of our uncommon pillars is radical relationships, which emphasizes prioritizing one-on-one relationships as well as larger group community. Another one of our uncommon pillars is fervent faith, which emphasizes knowing Christ and living to glorify his name here on earth. And I share that because the other day I was reading in Hebrews 10, and when I got to the final section, I was struck by the reminder of the importance of community in persevering in our faith. And this reminder reinforced to me really everything that we're striving to do through the uncommon, providing men and women with community and resources for growth. In the NIV translation, this final section, which is comprised of verses 19 through 39, it's entitled, A Call to Persevere in Faith. And the word persevere means to persist or continue in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. And this begs the question, how do I persevere in my faith? And you can answer this question in many ways. Certainly a major aspect of persevering is to rest and rely on God's strength and wisdom alone, not our own. In the book of Job, and Job, who by the way is one of the most powerful pictures of perseverance in all of scripture, in chapter 12, 13, It says, but true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. Likewise, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, of course, we know that God is neither foolish nor weak. Paul is using hyperbole here to emphasize the reality that God achieves the mightiest ends through the humblest of means through things that to men who lack divine revelation by God's spirit would seem weak or foolish, most notably having Jesus die on the cross to conquer sin and death. So in terms of our perseverance, we can't rely on our own wisdom and strength. We must rely on God's true wisdom and strength. And for many of us, even those of us who profess faith in Christ, what does perseverance often look like? It looks like white knuckling through life's trials, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and marching on. All these platitudes that we we hear so often that are really harmful if you think about it. It's this fixation on self, and at the root of this is pride. Fun fact, what's the middle letter of the word pride? That's right, I. But it's true that we are constantly battling against the temptation of self-reliance, of trying to prove to ourselves and others that we got this, but we don't got this. 
and that's okay. When we can admit that we are utterly incapable of navigating and overcoming life's hardships on our own, we can then take purposeful steps towards resting and relying on God to guide us, fight our battles, and make a way when there seems to be no way. Say amen in your car or your kitchen if you agree. I'm convinced that when it comes to persevering, there is power in numbers. We need others around us who see our blind spots, encourage us with truth, pray with and for us, not just say, I'll pray for you and then walk away and forget. I'm raising my hand saying that I'm guilty of that and can we be better? We need people to pick us up, hold us accountable, even lovingly rebuke us at times. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27.5 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So don't surround yourself with yes men who only tell you what you want to hear because they don't want to offend you or rock the boat. That's spineless, and that's not what a true friend does when you're acting the fool. Back to our passage in Hebrews. For this episode, the specific verses I want to focus on are verses 23 through 25, where we see a profound call to community and fellowship within the Christian faith. Here is what those verses say. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's Hebrews 10, 23-25. I want to dive into the richness of these verses And let us consider seven points that emphasize the significance of coming together as believers. Point number one, holding on to hope. Verse 23 charges us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Who is he? Jesus. Jesus is faithful. The first section of this chapter talks about Christ's sacrifice once and for all. Jesus ushered in the new covenant by sacrificing his body on the cross for us, paying the penalty for our sins, being raised again, and perfecting forever those who are being made holy. That's verse 14. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, we can and must hold unswervingly to our hope in him. Note that word, unswervingly. It means steadily or steadfastly, without faltering or turning to the side. Proverbs 4.27 warns us not to turn to the right or to the left, keep our feet from evil, And in James chapter 1, another tremendous text on perseverance I'd encourage you to read. In verse 6, it says that when we ask God for wisdom, we must ask with faith and not doubt, because, quote, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That does not sound unswerving to me. And as we look at the relationship between our hope and Christ's faithfulness, we know that faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11.1. While we do not physically see Jesus, we have unshakable faith in him because of what he has done and what he has promised to do. And this means that no matter what trial we encounter, we can persevere by clinging to our hope, who is Christ. The second point is spur one another to love and good works. What image comes to mind when you hear that word spur? Likely it's the pointy devices on a rider's heel which allows them to communicate to their horse through subtle movements. Essentially, the rider is directing and urging the horse to move and or accelerate. This word spur is rooted in the Greek word paruxusmos. Pardon my pronunciation there, but means to provoke or stir up. 
Another way to understand this is literally unto a paroxysm of love. Paroxysm means a sudden attack or violent expression of emotion. The idea here being that we are to endeavor to, one, consider each other. And I want to focus right there because how often do we fail to even consider those around us, let alone our brothers and sisters of the faith? I'll confess that I too often am am so wrapped up in myself that I fail to notice those around me not being perceptive to their pain or struggles, let alone being curious about how they're doing in terms of their relationship with Jesus. Shame on me. And how can I spur them on if I don't even stop to consider them? And two, we consider them in order to spur one another on in love and good deeds. As believers in Christ, we are called to excite each other, to persist in love for Christ, and consequently obedience to him and love for one another. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. This challenges us to actively engage in each other's lives. Going beyond the the surface level conversations, the comfortable interactions, getting into the, the nitty gritty and leading out in that vulnerability, creating that trust, encouraging or inciting acts of kindness and expression of love within our Christian community. And you can't do this if you're lone wolfing it. The third point is the power of togetherness. Verse 25 hits us with a convicting exhortation. The phrase, not neglecting to meet together, underscores the vitality of communal worship. The second part of that verse says, as some are in the habit of doing. It's not like they're missing church occasionally. It's it's talking about habitual denial of participating in community. And what are what are some of the reasons that many believers neglect the gathering today? I think the first thing is pride. We think we don't need the body. And just to be blunt, that's arrogant. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes on unity and diversity in the body of Christ. Verse 21 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Verse 24, But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other, not just for themselves. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. There's a lot that we could say and go into there, but I just want to say, I don't know what part of the body God has made you to be, but if you're giving into pride and thinking you don't need the body, you're sorely mistaken. I think another reason why we neglect the gathering is because we're selfish. What does Paul command us in Philippians 2, 2 through 4? It says, be unified in God's spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Humbly value others above yourself. Do not look to your own interests but to the interests of others, if you are selfishly choosing to forsake the gathering, I question how you are obeying this call. Another reason we neglect the gathering a lot of times is because of insecurity. We care too much about how we're viewed by others, overly concerned with whether or not we'll be accepted. Maybe we lack confidence and feel we have little to offer the church community. Perhaps you've been burned in the past. I hear a lot of people say that they stopped going to church because they were hurt by either a pastor or a church leader or even a fellow congregant. And so they just write off church altogether. And if that's you, 
I first want to empathize and say that I am sorry that you've been hurt. And some tough love here. The person or persons that hurt you or failed you, that is not the heart of Christ. We have to realize that churches are full of broken sinners. Every single person that ever goes to a church is fallible and will probably fail you in some way. And guess what else? You've likely disappointed or hurt someone else at a church. So we need to heed the biblical call to take out the log in our own eye first before pointing out the speck in our brother's eye. We need to lead out in repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation and cast our cares on Christ, allow him to heal us and continue to persevere in the body. Don't let hurt caused by others push you away from Christian community. That is what the enemy wants. You've likely heard the analogy that when you withhold forgiveness, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Yes, it does probably hurt them, but who it hurts more than anyone is yourself. So bring your pain and your disappointment to the foot of the cross and press into the presence of our gracious God. I think another reason that we neglect the gathering is misguided love. 2 Timothy 3 gives us a sobering warning concerning the end times. It says, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. That's 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. through 5. Again, there's too much to unpack here in this passage for now, but I encourage you to study and reflect on this in your own time. It is worth noting the dichotomy of love that's illustrated. On the one hand, people love the wrong things. They love themselves. They love money, pleasure, while failing to love the right things, God and goodness. And while not explicitly stated in this passage, it's safe to surmise that this depiction implies a lack of love for Christ's body. In order for us to feel the true gravity of what it means to love Christ's body, it's important to take a step back and answer the question, how exactly is the church the body of Christ? And while this topic deserves its own episode, I'll attempt to illustrate with a few points. After Jesus' bodily ascension, he continues his work in the world through those he has redeemed, the church, which now demonstrates the love of God tangibly, albeit imperfectly. The church may be called the body of Christ because of these facts, and I'm taking these from a gotquestions.org article that I'll link in the show notes. The first is, members of the body of Christ are joined to Christ in salvation. We can read about that in Ephesians 4. Members of the body of Christ follow Christ as their head, Ephesians 1. Members of the body of Christ are the physical representation of Christ in this world, the organism through which Christ manifests his life to the world. Members of the body of Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 verse 9. Members of the body of Christ possess diversity of spiritual gifts suited for specific functions, 1 Corinthians 12. Members of the body of Christ share a common bond with all believers, regardless of background, race, ministry, transcending all earthly divisions, again, 1 Corinthians 12. Members of the body are secure in their salvation, John 10, hallelujah. Members of the body of Christ partake of his death and resurrection. Members of the body of Christ share in his inheritance, Romans 8. 
members of the body of Christ, receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. Again, praise God. Romans 5. These blessed truths and many more are the very truths that we need to be encouraging one another with consistently as we prioritize the gathering. Gathering as a community isn't just a recommendation. It's a recognition of the spiritual power that emerges when believers unite. It is a humble acknowledgement of the beauty and purpose of the body of Christ. Together we can draw strength, wisdom, and inspiration from each other. Conversely, alone we are isolated and devoid of that collective strength and function. So my question to you, listener, is if, if you have professed faith in Christ, are you prioritizing living out your faith within the body of Christ? Are you a regular attender of a local church? I'm not talking about are you a member, but are you going? Are you being consistent and not just showing up halfway through worship and leaving during worship at the end, but are you going and, and interacting with the people there? Do you value and love the body of Christ? If your answer is no to any of these questions, my encouragement is for you to reflect on why you're forsaking the gathering, whether it's pride, selfishness, insecurity, fear, misplaced love, and, and just confess that to Christ. Repent, return to Christ and his body that you may be encouraged and be an encourager because, newsflash, the body of Christ needs you. The fourth point is the impact of encouragement. Hebrews emphasizes the power of mutual encouragement. In a world filled with challenges, having a supportive community can make significant difference in our spiritual journey. I think we saw very clear evidence of this during the pandemic and during lockdowns when so many people were isolated and you see things like anxiety and depression and and even suicides and alcoholism, just those things spiked. I don't have statistics around it, but we all know that that's what happened. Encouragement serves as a lifeline, helping believers persevere in their faith and navigate life's complexities. I want you to take a moment. Think of a time that you were going through a trial. Now, maybe you're going through a trial right now. Who was someone that encouraged you during that trial? How did they encourage you? Did they pray with you? Did they share truth from God's word with you? Did they just sit with you and mourn with you? Did they try to feel what you were feeling, empathize? That is the body of Christ in action. Paul begins his letter in 2 Corinthians by praising God and encouraging the believers. In verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Your trials are not just for you. Sit in that right there. Your trials are not just for you. If you have suffered, and we all have in our own way, and have experienced the comfort of God, then you owe it to your brothers and sisters of the faith to enter into their suffering and comfort them with the same heavenly comfort you received from God during your trials. The fifth point, modern relevance, applying these verses to our contemporary context, the call to community remains as crucial as ever in an increasingly individualistic society. Hebrews 10, 24-25 reminds us of the transformative potential found in shared experiences, in corporate worship, and biblical encouragement. And there's a concept that's promoted by many self-help gurus and influencers It's the pursuit of self-actualization. Self-actualization, though it is difficult to define precisely, 
It refers to the concept of reaching one's full potential. Carl Goldstein is a therapist generally credited with first discussing this idea. But self-actualization is also a common concept in person-centered therapy and other humanistic approaches to psychology. And again, I'm citing from an article from gotquestions.org. It says, from a biblical perspective, there are many troublesome issues associated with the concept of self-actualization, which can be likened to sanctification, yet is devoid of God and therefore will not work. Humans are not inherently good, so the true you is not going to be a good you. Like, sit in that for a moment, because we hear so many people talking about living their best life or being their best self or living their truth. That's garbage. Like, the reality is that our best self is sinful and broken and deserving of eternal separation from God and hell. That is why we need Christ. That's why we need to die to self, be raised with Christ, live a new life as a new creation. In our sinful state, we are not naturally inclined to grow in ways that would make us unselfish. The teaching of self-actualization hints at the reality that we are made in God's image and that he has designed us with a specific purpose in mind. We do have potential in that God wants to transform us to be more like him. But again, the process requires God. God wants us to grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Again, this points to growth, not just as individuals, but but growth as the body of Christ. We are all pursuing growth in Christ. We do not become more fully ourselves or reach our full potential by an effort of self. Rather, we become who God designed us to be by following him, dying to ourselves, and yielding to the Holy Spirit. The sixth point is building resilient faith. Ultimately, these verses guide us towards building a stronger faith by actively participating in a community that fosters love and good deeds and mutual encouragement. Believers can find strength and endurance in their spiritual journey. So as we wrap up, you know, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, just a couple verses, but so important. It's a compelling reminder of the essential role that community plays in the life of a believer through shared experiences, mutual encouragement through the truth of God's holy word and the collective pursuit of love and good deeds, we can cultivate a vibrant and resilient faith that withstands the tests of time. And it's only going to get harder, which means we only need each other even more. The last part of verse 25 says, And all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of Christ's soon return. And make no mistake, Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night in the twinkling of an eye, and only those who have expected and prepared themselves for his arrival will be ready. Paul ends chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians by saying, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Maranatha, which means come Lord. May we eagerly await his soon return with our fellow believers and continue to spur each other on until the day arrives. Grace and peace. Thank you for listening to The Uncommon Podcast. If you have benefited from our show, I would ask you to follow, rate, and review and share our show. And be sure to check out our website at theuncommon.com where you can learn more about our mission, sign up for one of our live experiences, and take advantage of many resources that will empower you on your uncommon journey.